Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Virtually Legal. We have a really exciting episode lined up for you today. We are speaking to Chrissy Wolfe about the introduction of the SQE. Chrissy is a solicitor, the founder of Law & Broader, was voted Solicitor of the Year, Woman of the Year and is an all-round legal icon. Chrissy, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for that epic introduction. You're far too kind. Uh, very, very, very glad to be here. It should be a really exciting episode. So thank you for inviting me. So are you able to give our listeners an insight into what you're up to at the moment and your involvement with the SQE to kind of explain why we've roped you into doing the podcast with us? <laughs> sure. Yes. Yeah, so uh, I am the founder of Law & Broader, which um, obviously you guys have heard of and hopefully maybe some of you listening have heard of as well, which uh, was started off life as a YouTube channel giving help and advice to students trying to break through the training contract process and into law because I really struggled with the process. I had terrible academics, which made it incredibly difficult for me to get into the profession in the first place. But I eventually did. Uh, get through it and I secured a training contract at Erwin Mitchell where I then stayed for the best part of eight years um, and built up kind of law and broader as soon as I was a newly qualified off the back of a lot of mentoring that I was doing for other students who were struggling to break into the profession for various reasons. Um, In the last few years uh, I've become quite involved in the SQE really just kind of almost as a kind of correspondent to students via my YouTube channel and Instagram pages and all of my social media, really. Um, So I was involved, first of all, in the focus groups for designing the SQE exams and kind of what order they should go in and what content should be included within them. So I've been working quite closely with the SRA sort of throughout the whole SQE process up until now. And I have regular meetings, kind of quarterly meetings uh, with the SRA to kind of get the most up to date information, which I usually communicate to uh, my LAB followers via YouTube or Instagram, etc. And also kind of through various events and things that I do as well. So yeah, that's kind of where we are. I've been quite involved in the SQE. And it's something which I'm passionate about and passionate about getting information out there, because I know that it can be difficult, particularly for students who are trying to break into the profession to know kind of what their options are, because we're in this kind of transition period where you can do either the LPC or the SQE. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of information out there. Yes, a lot of questions. Yeah, you know, I want to to try and provide as much information as I can to help anyone trying to make that decision to make it in as an informed way as possible. So we wanted to start off by diving straight into what was the purpose of the SQE? Why has it come about and why was it necessary to have this kind of complete like shake up of the profession? Yeah, so basically it came out, it came about for two main reasons, really. I think one of the reasons was that the SRA, who is the regulator, uh, the Solicitor's Regulation Authority, basically wanted there to be a streamlined process for qualification. So the SQE, once it's fully implemented, is going to be the only way to qualify as a solicitor. So at the moment, there are quite a few ways of qualifying as a solicitor. So you can go down the Silex route, you can go down the QLTS route, you can get a training contract, you can get an apprenticeship. There are kind of all of these different ways of qualifying. And the SRA just wanted to kind of make the whole process uniform so that everybody was going to do the same thing, basically take the same exams, have exactly the same structure and qualify in exactly the same way so they can ensure a universal standard of qualification of solicitors. So that was one of the reasons. The second reason 
is because of the training contract bottleneck, which no doubt most of you who are listening to this will be all too familiar with, which is the amount of students who are trying to qualify as lawyers versus the number of training contracts which are available. And it's kind of the number of training contracts are which are available are kind of disproportionate to the amount of jobs that are available in law as well. So effectively, the purpose of the SQE is to kind of open out the legal market entirely so that students are able to qualify into different types of legal job without kind of having to funnel through the training contract process, which is kind of largely dominated by private practice law firms. So the idea of the SQE was to make the profession a lot more accessible by allowing students to actually qualify into roles that potentially wouldn't have been able to had they had to go through the training contract route. So really, primarily, it was to to streamline the process and to create more accessibility to the profession. So most of you will be familiar with the LPC process, i.e. you do your law degree or your conversion degree, you then go on to do your LPC, and then you would need to secure a training contract in order to qualify, or there are other routes of qualification, i.e. Silex, but effectively the traditional main route would be to secure a training contract after your LPC or during the course of your LPC, whichever way your firm kind of wants you to do it. So that would be the traditional route. Contrast that with the SQE, which effectively has four elements to it. So you still need uh, a qualifying law degree. Uh, Sorry, you still need an undergraduate degree. The major difference being that it doesn't have to be a law degree. And if you haven't done a law degree, you don't need to do a conversion course anymore, which was the key part of the LPC route is that if you did not have a law degree, you would have to do a GDL before you could do your LPC. Whereas if you want to do the SQE route, you don't have to do a conversion course in order to qualify as a solicitor. So that's kind of the first key difference, really. As long as you hold um, an English equivalent degree, then you will then you can take go on to take your SQE exams without needing to do a conversion course. So the first element is an undergraduate degree. The second element is that you have to complete your SQE exams, which are two sets of exams, SQE1 and SQE2. And uh, the third element is that you need to pass the character and suitability test, which is a fairly straightforward form that you have to submit to the SRA, which basically just indicates that you haven't got any past misdemeanors um, that the SRA wouldn't like uh, in order to qualify. And then the fourth element is the qualifying work experience element, which is two years experience, but it doesn't have to be in the form of a training contract, which is the kind of major headline about this is that you don't have to secure a training contract. You just need two years qualifying work experience. And that qualifying work experience is any experience which in a legal environment, which allows you to develop the competencies required of a solicitor. So it's quite a broad definition. So, and there are potentially many, many different roles that would satisfy that definition. So the idea is that you don't have to go through a training contract route. So with qualifying work experience, the first sort of ideas I have are sort of legal assistant, paralegal, whether that's in-house private practice, but do you know of sort of the other routes you can take? Could you work in government or could there be alternative qualifying work experiences out there? Yes. So. The difficulty with kind of necessarily trying to pick an option for how to do your qualifying work experience is there aren't kind of a set selection of roles that will automatically qualify as qualifying work experience. I think you'd be fairly safe with a paralegal role that will almost certainly meet the definition. But in terms of other roles, if you're looking specifically for a role that will count towards qualifying work experience, it's really about the substance of the role and whether what you will be doing on a day to day basis is enough to satisfy that definition. And it won't always be clear. So it's not the case that you can say if it's a legal assistant job, it will definitely satisfy. Or if it's a admin job, it definitely will. In some firms or in some businesses, those roles will allow you to develop those competencies. But that will differ from business to business, from role to role, from firm to firm. 
So there's no easy way of picking a role or a job to apply for that will necessarily qualify. You have to ask the questions of the potential employer to find out whether it will satisfy the definition. So it, it, there's no kind of set roles, basically. And with that, will um, the SRA sort of, um, I guess, so obviously you go to a firm, could you ask, will they be like, oh, we are like accredited as qualifying work experience? Or will it just, do you have to prove to the SRA that you've developed the competent, the competent, the competencies over time yes so basically it's up to you as a kind of individual to keep a kind of a training diary basically so it's kind of this may change going forward but because Mm. we're kind of so new into this and a lot of employers are not familiar with the process it's kind of up to you to kind of make a, a list of those competencies which are on the sra website and make sure that you are keeping track of what you're ticking off basically and keeping a note of the tasks that you do that you think satisfies those definitions and what has to happen at the end of that is that a solicitor who's registered in england wales will have to sign off that you've completed those tasks so they don't have to sign you off as a solicitor as they would do under the old system if it were a training contract but you do have to get it confirmed and signed off by a solicitor to say that you have completed those tasks that you say that you've completed It definitely seems like how you're going to approach your training is Mm. going to change. You're going to have to be a lot more active and consider what you're doing like a lot more consciously. Whereas I think now, once you've got your training contract, you can end up being a little bit passive in terms of it all being laid out for you and you just kind of move through seats, ticking boxes as you go. But I think with this new system, you're going to have to think, okay, what kind of firm do I want to qualify at? And then how do I organise my qualifying work experience and make sure I get that NQ job? You're really going to have to take the bull by the horns a lot earlier on. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And, you know, you've highlighted a key point there, which is that you can qualify via the SQE route and you will be a qualified solicitor, but it doesn't guarantee you a job at the end of it. Um, which if you do the training contract, you're, although there's not 100% retention rate on training contracts, generally speaking, you've got a good chance of getting a qualification role with that firm afterwards. So it's not as much of a concern where you ultimately qualify because you would generally qualify at the firm where you undertook your training contract. Whereas this is a bit of a different system. If you If you opt to kind of do the SQE off your own back, if you like, So if you choose to do qualifying work experience, you can only do it in up to four establishments. So if you choose to do those in in four different establishments and then qualify and then kind of go out into the world, the open labour market and look for an NQ role, you've got to be mindful of putting yourself in the best possible position with your qualifying work experience that you've got to secure an NQ role, because that that could be a very, very busy market, a very saturated market with people who are qualifying this way via the SQE, who are then looking for newly qualified roles. But that isn't the only way to do it. You can still do it in a similar way to the old way effectively because most firms are now still offering training contracts in the same way they were before but they are just offering to pay for the sqe exams instead of the lpc so effectively they will be offering training contracts to people who are you know ready to start in two years time they will put them through sqe1 sqe2 and they will offer them a two-year training contract which will be their qualifying work experience and then effectively you will be in the same position as you were in if you were doing a training contract so there is still the option to, to do it that way. And I think firms who are not offering training contracts will generally be quite keen to keep you if you decide to do your qualifying work experience um, at a place which potentially will offer you an NQ role. I think that's one of that's a sensible decision to make is try and have a discussion 
with the place that you're trying to do your qualifying work experience to see if they have potentially have an NQ job available. They may not guarantee it, but you can get an indication as to whether there's likely to be one. And it, it's, you know, it's a sensible decision to try and look to do qualifying work experience in places like that. So it reduces your chance of just being kind of completely out in the cold market at NQ level. So kind of like going back to the beginning, because I feel like we've done this in reverse, talking about the qualifying work experience first. But now looking at like the content of the ISQE exams, um, funding, things like that, and how that's going to compare to the LPC, because I think that's where people's immediate concerns are going to lie. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the SQE, the SQE itself comprises two exams. So SQE1, which is a multiple choice exam, which tests your functional legal knowledge. So effectively, that's, you know, something that you would be in a fairly good position to do if you've done a law degree. It will test basically, you know, your basic legal knowledge. Um, SQE2 is more like the LPC in a way. It's more like some elements of the LPC where it tests your practical skills. So kind of interviewing, advocacy, all of those types of things. So that's kind of broadly the difference, because if you were to do a law degree in an LPC, you wouldn't have to do that kind of SQE1 part normally. So it's kind of almost an extra extra step um, if you've already done a law degree. And there isn't an exemption from SQE1 if you've done a law degree. You still have to do both parts, um, regardless of whether you've done a law degree or not. But you will probably find it more straightforward if you've done a law degree, whereas if you've done if you've done um, a, a non-law degree and you're dis- and you're opting not to do the GDL because you don't have to do the GDL you, you can still do the GDL if you want to but it's not a required part of the qualification process as it was under the traditional system uh, you would probably need to do a more intensive preparation course for SQE1 because obviously there's a very slim chance you're going to pass a test about functioning legal knowledge if you've done zero law in your life and it would just be a waste of money basically I think going at that with no prep course. In regards to prep courses I would also recommend a prep course even if you've done a law degree because there is an element of actually prepping for the exam itself and the style of exam which is helpful so even if you know the content actually having some prep for the format is very helpful because again you know you want to pass first time ideally you can have up to three attempts to pass the exam but really but you have to pay separately each time you'd have to wait for the next sitting of those exams to come around your driving test you never you don't want to fail i know you can do it again but you don't want to fail yeah you have to wait (laughs) yeah because you have to wait you know and there's not going to be another sitting probably for six months and you have to pay for it again etc so you want to give yourself the best possible shot of passing the first time i would say and regardless of whether you've done a law degree or not then I think a prep course to help you that's entirely designed to prep you for that exam would be very, very helpful. So in terms of content, how do they differ? Is it right that you don't get to include elective modules? Because I mean, personally, so I'm doing the LPC at the moment and I struggle to see how everything I'm learning could be condensed into like two really long multiple choice exams. And like in response to those concerns, I've heard about firms that are designing their own SQE programs to add those electives and maybe pad out the content. So there could essentially be two different SQE courses running in parallel. Yeah, so there are, no, that's exactly right. So yes, you cannot do electives as part of SQE2. There are core, it's a core test because it's part of this kind of universal standard they're trying to create. So they don't offer you different electives to do. They want everybody to, to pass, having done exactly the same experience, exactly the same modules, having sat exactly the same exams. 
So there is, I mean, the idea is that you kind of tailor your experience and your knowledge through your qualifying work experience element. So you will learn specific learn specifics about different areas of practice based on the qualifying work experience that you do and you're also exactly right that some firms who are kind of proceeding as if they were offering training contracts in the same way as they were before are kind of tailoring their SQE exam so the consortium for example which is a group of I think it's five or six city firms um, are designing a training program in conjunction with BPP where they're tailoring their um, SQE basically to make sure they've got experience in certain additional modules so that's and that's for firms to do that i think you possibly will see more and more firms to firms and businesses going down that route but the pure sqe itself does not contain you cannot kind of amend it in any way you have to just do the core modules and the core exams and that's sort of part of the unifying process would you say then um so obviously magic circle firms big international law firms that offer um training contracts um my kind of idea or understanding is people who have done the SQE off their own back just aren't going to be able to get into those firms. Well, I think I think those firms will still be offering training contracts. So mm. the large proportion of those of the people who go on to qualify in those firms will have come via a training contract and they will operate, you know, almost an identical process to the one that they do now in terms of recruiting yeah. two years in advance, online application, et cetera, et cetera. The process will remain exactly the same for those firms um, and they will just be paying for a different exam, basically. Um, which I don't think was actually what the SRA envisaged, you know, no, I think, you know, the idea was that everybody would be on an equal playing field, but I think it was probably a slight oversight uh, in terms of how much law firms resist change. (laughs) So, you know, I think, you know, every law firm has obviously curated a recruitment process, which has worked to them. It's produced the trainees they want to produce. They're happy with it. So even though the system is changing, if they can, keep that process the same as much as possible then they're going to want to do that one question uh, i know we've mentioned paralegal roles and one thing that i'm really considering when choosing between the sq and the lpc is getting a paralegal role currently without the lpc is really difficult so if you don't have the sqe or any qualification coming out of law other than say i do sqe one is that going to limit my ability to get a qualifying work experience role as a paralegal because I don't if I'd struggle now in the first place anyway because I don't have the LPC am I only going to struggle later I see what you're saying yeah it's it's a good question actually because it is something to think about in terms of the new process I mean I think one thing to bear in mind is that you can you can do those four things in those four components of the SQE you can do in any order so actually Mm. you could feasibly do your SQE1 and your SQE2 before looking for qualifying work experience and effectively you then have the equivalent of an LPC LPC. I think yeah because you'd have SQE1 and SQE2 and the SQE2 is the kind of practical skills part however the SRA didn't really plan it that way they kind of the the idea of SQE2 really is that you're supposed to take that at the end of your QW in the SQE2 to learn from the QW yeah it's supposed to kind of confirm that you've met that standard that you've learned everything you needed to learn as part of of qualifying work experience but nevertheless it is possible because they want to make the route as flexible as it possibly can be so there is a possibility of doing sqe1 and sqe2 first which may put you in a stronger position but again it's really too early to tell because no one's Mm -hmm. taken sqe2 yet i mean no one's taken sqe1 yet either 
it's literally just been rolled out. The first sitting of SQE1 is going to be in November this year. So it's still such early days to sort of know how it's going to be looked upon by firms. But I think the important thing to remember is that this is going to be the only way to qualify in a few years time. So firms have to embrace this route and they can't they can't discriminate because this is literally going to be the only way. So it would be pointless to sort of discriminate against people who are coming this way because, you know, people who are just starting their legal career now have to go have to go through this way. Mm. And from there, I mean, I've sat in on a number of events with firms, panel discussions, focus groups, and it does seem to be the consensus that firms are not discriminating. I was going to say, if, for example, you've got lots of people that have done the LPC already because of the bottleneck, and say, for example, I decided next year to do the LPC, what happens with the people that have done the LPC that then can't get a training contract that then think, oh, maybe I should do the SQE? Is it a slightly different route or is it the same route for everyone? Would they practically be paying for two exam- like two qualifications? Yeah, so good question. And there is sort of a, a bit of a cheeky hybrid route that you can do, which <laughs> isn't kind of over-publicised by, by the SRA. But it is possible if you've done your, if you've completed your LPC, then you do not have to sit SQE1. You do still have to sit SQE2, though. So effectively, you would still have to pay for your SQE2 exam. So it's a good option if you're somebody who's already completed their LPCs, you know, some time ago, potentially, and have got, you know, a couple of years paralegal experience. So you've got your two years QWE, which incidentally can be retrospective. So you don't have to get it from now. It can have been already accrued. So if you're in that position, but you just can't get that training contract, which I know so many people are in this position, they've paralegaled forever, you know, worked really, really hard, done all their exams, but they just cannot secure that training contract, then that is potentially an option that you could opt to do your SQE2 exam and then qualify effectively, which I think will be quite a popular option for people who've been in that position for some time. So you don't need to get your training contract. It's technically it's technically kind of a hybrid route um that you can do so it is an option but i wouldn't recommend planning to do that because effectively you're that you're paying for the lpc and the sqe so we seem to have come onto it quite naturally but speaking about finances and funding one of the biggest reasons for the introduction of the sqe was to make the route into law more accessible and to try and remove some of the financial barriers So a lot of students are currently in the position where they feel like they have to front up the cost of the LPC um, without the guarantee of a training contract or a job afterwards, just to be able to secure a paralegal role even. And that can be a massive financial gamble. So how's the SQE going to work and how's it potentially going to change that? So the funding aspect is probably the most tricky, actually, because there is fun- there is government funding available for LPC courses, but there is not government funding available for the SQE. So I think the, the important thing to acknowledge about the SQE and the, uh, an important difference is the SQE itself is effectively a set of two exams. It's not, whereas the LPC is a course. So the LPC, and we know how much the LPC costs. And if you want to study LPC in London, you're looking at about 17,000. If you want to study outside, you can probably do it for 13 in a region. Um, so, the, so the LPC is an expensive course. And if you're somebody who's not got a training contract, that's effectively money out of your own pocket at risk that you will never qualify. 
because under the old system, you do need that two year training contract in order to qualify. So that is obviously the risk that you take with the LPC. And that puts off a huge amount of people from doing the LPC without a training contract is not having the funds to pay for their LPC. So contrast that with the SQE exams, which the, the exams are on their own uh, are priced at £3,980. So that's the cost of SQE one and two. And that so that is just the pure exams. But as I've said before, it is recommended to do a prep course with that to give you the best chance of passing first time, because otherwise there's a chance you might have to pay that all over again if you don't pass, which is obviously not ideal. You don't want to be forking out that money twice and there's no exemptions on payment if you if you fail. So in terms of prep courses, the kind of the most cost effective prep course that I've come across is the Barbary one, which I think is actually the best as well um, from my experience uh, with Barbary. Barbary actually run the courses which prep for the New York bar, which is what the SQE is based on. Um, so uh, so so all in all, exams and prep course with with Barbary will cost you 10 will cost you under 10,000 pounds. So that's the cost of the total cost of the exams and a prep course. So it's still less than the LPC. But, uh, it, <laughs> but I'm just thinking the LPC, you can do it with a master's. That with, yes, you can also do the SQE with a master's. Oh, does that with, make it more expensive? <laughs> well, it, make, it does make it more expensive, but it makes it government funded. It makes it yeah. eligible for government funding. So University of Law offer uh, and probably other universities as well uh, will will come out of the woodwork um, into that will offer, you know, more and more are coming out. Now, I think there's something like over 50 providers that are offering SQE courses. So there are lots of places to do this now. But ULaw are offering um, are offering a master's course, which will effectively it will cost more, but it will be eligible for government funding. So it's kind of offsets it, if you like. It's a more expensive course, but it's, it's offset by the fact that funding is available. But also, you know, there's still the option of doing your SQE under the kind of wing of a training contract. If you can get it, if you can get it that way, then it will be funded by your employer in the same way that the LPC would have been funded. So it won't cost you anything if you if you apply for a training contract, which is is funded by a firm. There's also the apprenticeship route as well, which you can get either an undergraduate apprenticeship if you're a school leaver or or a graduate apprenticeship. There are less graduate apprenticeships around, but there are more and more coming out, actually, with kind of in-house apprenticeships, graduate apprenticeships, which is another way of doing it. And those are fully subsidised as well. So you actually wouldn't pay a penny towards your courses if you did it that way. Fab, I feel like we've covered a massive amount of ground and definitely answered a lot of the questions I had. So, Chrissy, what would be your closing tips for someone that's currently in the position of choosing between LPC or SQE? I think there are a lot of things to consider and we've covered a lot of these things. I think one key difference is the exam itself. The SQE1 is a multiple choice exam and it's a two day exam and it's a long slog. Uh, and for me, I would find that very difficult. I actually much preferred the LPC style of exam to the SQE exam. So I think one, one point does come down a little bit to your, ex to your exam style. So I think that's, that's one thing to consider is the exam itself. I think another thing to consider is sort of where you see yourself working in the future. I mean, what I like, there are a lot of pros and cons to the SQE. You know, I, I'm by no means saying that it's, you know, completely covered in roses and butterflies. There are a lot of issues <laughs> with the SQE, but there are a lot of, you know, a lot of issues with the old route as well. But I think one of the things I do really like about the SQE is that it does open up 
alternative routes to qualification in terms of the fact that you know i'm a big believer in you know private practice is not the be all and end all yes it's an option and previously it's been the main option because those are the firms that were regulated to offer training contracts and other businesses weren't but i think now it's really opened up the market particularly in-house which is such an interesting route to go down if you work in-house for a company you get so much experience you get to work on something you're passionate about as well because you can kind of combine your law with working for a company who you know potentially is you know works in something that's like your hobby or your passion so you could work for Mm -hmm. a fashion company or a car company or a tech company you know as an in-house lawyer a couple of great examples of um in-house lawyers uh, that you might want to follow if you want to find out a little bit more about in-house roots in-house potter and that law blog so holly moore whose instagram is at that law blog she's actually doing the sqe at the moment she's an apprentice at itv so she's probably the kind of the most you know the most real experience you can get because she's actually doing it right here and right now so it's worthwhile giving her a follow it's a big one to ponder on but actually i mean i think whichever route you choose you're not going to be at a disadvantage you know I, re- I really believe that um so i think it really comes down to what you would prefer Thanks so much to Chrissy for coming onto the podcast. I think it was definitely one of our most informative podcasts and we really couldn't have asked for a better guest to answer all of our burning questions. So in case you tuned out at any point and just want the headlines, here are your three key takeaways. Firstly, the SQE route will potentially require you to be more proactive in terms of getting your competencies signed off and making sure you're giving yourself the best quality experience to help you secure those NQ roles. If the SQE will potentially create a more competitive NQ market, then you need to think about what you want from your career and approach your qualifying work experience accordingly. Secondly, while you still have the choice between SQE and LPC, it might be worth thinking about the different kinds of assessment and which you think you'll perform better at. And lastly, this is potentially going to open a lot of doors and allow you to qualify through alternative routes. So we would really encourage you to think about working in-house or exploring avenues that weren't previously available in order to make sure that you make the most out of what is set to be the biggest overhaul to legal training in decades. Thanks so much for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe and follow us on LinkedIn for more updates.